It is our privilege today to witness believers' baptism. Wonderful, wonderful day for the church family in every way because they're not only being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but also, you know, they're going to join this assembly of saints. It's your responsibility to encourage them to go on and on and on and on. That's what life's all about. That's what the Christian life is all about, to go on with the Lord. So we have this wonderful thing whereby we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. We're raised again, of course, as you know, uh, for the new life that's in Christ Jesus. So baptism reminds us of the church that has proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and does continually proclaim that kind of gospel. That's the kind of church we belong to. We belong to a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it behooves us to know that this is the church body that we will join after baptism. We've come together, and that's the whole point and the whole excitement of being one in Christ Jesus, and that's a wonderful thought. We want to uh, just look at Acts 8, 26 to 39, a wonderful portion of Scripture. You all remember, of course, uh, uh, Philip. He was an evangelist going around to hundreds of people, and suddenly the Holy Spirit says, come away from them and go to a barren place where there's nobody around at all. And so we read in Acts 8, 26 to 39. Now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is desert country. This is a barren country. There's probably nobody there. What did Phillips do? He got up. He got up and went. Left this busy time of being an evangelist. He went, it says there. He rose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. <clears throat> was returning, and sitting in the chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him. That's the way we want to serve the Lord. When God calls us to tell somebody about Jesus, we run to him. We don't just stand around waiting for something. We run to him. And so Philip ran to him. And he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? This is the Old Testament, too. And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at his, this scripture, preached unto him Jesus. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the church and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. That's what's going to happen here. I hope we all understand when you accept Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, 
You're going to go on your way rejoicing. That's what life's all about. You'll have your ups and downs. you have your trials and troubles, but we go on our way rejoicing. Philip went on his way rejoicing. Eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Irenaeus said, that's an early church father, he said about this eunuch, about uh, 200 A.D., Irenaeus said, this man went out to Ethiopia and spread the gospel in that country for the people to be saved. A wonderful thought there, wonderful thought. Let's really think of this when people are baptized. They're going to go on with the Lord. We pray for them. You encourage them. You who are older, encourage the young. And you who are young, encourage the older. We're one in Christ. I'm calling Brandon this time. Are you there, Brandon? I know he's there. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ died for you? I do. Do you want to say a few words? Yes. <clears throat> my name is Brandon Benner, and this is my personal testimony of how the Lord has worked in my life and my heart to bring me to him. Looking back at my life, I can easily see God's fingerprints everywhere, as his sovereign will was evident through my life. By God's grace, I have been in Awana clubs and Sunday school from an early age and have been introduced to the Christian faith at an early age. I am immensely blessed to have been born in a Christian family. Since coming here to Gushigan, I have met so many wonderful, God-fearing people of all ages and have really grown in faith and knowledge with Christ as I have been encouraged and challenged by others. It was also by attending Gushigan where I met Pastor John, and by God's grace, yet again, I grew in a wonderful friendship with him. Pastor John has had an immense impact on my life, just as many other godly men here have. By God's grace, I have grown stronger in my walk with the Lord through fellowship with Pastor John. I want to encourage him for all his hard work and to thank the Lord for working through him to help me in my walk with the Lord. At this time, I would also like to thank the Lord for using my family to soften my heart and bring me closer to him. I would like to thank my grandfather, for through him God has shown me his love and grace and many wonderful biblical truths and how to apply them in everyday life. I am so blessed to have a godly man such as my grandfather as a role model, and I pray that by God's grace I can grow in Christ to be just as strong loving, and godly as my grandfather. I also would like to thank my mother for also teaching me of God's love and biblical truths, for raising me with a healthy fear and respect for the Lord. I know God has divinely placed my mother in my life for a reason, for his glory, and she is the best mother I could ever ask for. I thank my grandmother for also encouraging me and challenging me in Christ for teaching me in the ways of the Lord in Sunday school in Awana for so many years. As I am baptized today, I recognize it as a picture of the gospel and as a symbol of my death to sin and my new life in Christ. Brandon, do you really believe that Jesus Christ died for you? I do. Are you willing to serve him the rest of your life? I am. Then on profession of your faith and confession of your faith in Jesus Christ and at the Lord's command, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit.
And the scripture says, here's water. What does hinder you from being baptized? God is calling people throughout this whole community for this church family to come and accept Christ their personal Savior and be baptized and to join the church. Partake and work in it with all your heart for Jesus Christ's sake. Take the Lord's Supper. These are the baby steps of a Christian. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Come and let the Lord call you even today. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your work in Brandon's heart. Lord, we thank you for the evidence of your work. As he said, Lord, that your fingerprints are all over his life. We thank you, Lord, for his maturity. Lord, for his discernment. Lord, it goes far beyond his years. So we thank you, Lord, that we know that all wisdom, in fact, every good gift comes from you. So, Lord, just as Brandon has testified to his union with Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, so, Lord, we pray that you would continue what you started. For, Lord Jesus, we know that you are the author and perfecter of his faith. Lord Jesus, just as you set aside and laid aside every weight and sin that so easily um, entangled, Lord, I thank you that we too are to run that race. Lord, the obedience that Christ was able to affect, Lord, he did it for us. He did it for you. I pray, Lord, that you will help Brandon to walk obediently for you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us as a body, us as a family, to gather around him in prayer, Lord, to encourage him, and Lord, to edify him, to spur him on, to love and good deeds, to proclaim your gospel to him, to walk with him, Lord, and to care for him as all true families do. So Lord, again, we just thank you for our brother and for this obedience. And Lord, we pray too that as we now open up your word and examine a little bit more deeply about what exactly baptism is and what it represents, I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, to ask not just what it represents in a, a theoretical or um, a, a propositional truth, but Lord, how it really impacts us, what it does with respect to us, where we stand before you. Lord, we know that baptism doesn't save. There are many who have been baptized and proved themselves to be unbelievers. But I pray that that would not be the case for any who are among us here this morning. I pray, Lord, that by your grace and your glory, we would be found faithful to the end. Lord, as we meditate here this morning on our relationship with you, our union with you, that baptism represents. So we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is indeed a very special 
morning in the life of our church. Uh, baptisms are not something that we get to see every day. Uh, we've just seen Brand to be baptized, and, and after this message, we're going to see Delia Volk be baptized. And it's, it's a real family celebration, even as we celebrate Thanksgiving as our, as our families, we have so much as a church family to be thankful for. And I know for my part, that, that one of the things that I am most grateful for is the way that God is affecting change in the lives of his people by his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. And so I pray too that this morning that, that each one of us here would also be changed by God's word in the power of his Holy Spirit. And just as, as Brandon and Delia are following Jesus in the waters of baptism, out of obedience, that we too would walk obediently to the Lord and his call for us on our lives. So we know that, that baptism is something that is practiced by virtually every church that calls itself Christian. But there is a lot of, of disagreement and disparity as to what baptism actually is and what it actually represents. There's disagreement about who should be baptized. There's disagreement about how we should be baptized. There's disagreement about when we should be baptized. But the teaching of Scripture is clear for those that sit down to study what God's Word really says about baptism. We're here this morning as a Baptist church. Many of us here call ourselves Baptists. But I wonder how many here have actually studied what baptism really is and what it really represents. We know that, that baptism was first introduced by John the Baptist. And we know that Jesus followed the command to be baptized, himself being obedient to God in, in going into the waters of baptism. He did that from the outset of his ministry. And we know that, that at the baptism of Jesus Christ, that, that every member of the Trinity was gathered there. We see God the Son receiving baptism. We see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And we see the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We know that Jesus not only was baptized, but he also commanded baptism. He commanded that his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He told the, the disciples in what is now known as the Great Commission to go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we know also that, that Peter commanded baptism. We see this in Acts 2.38, where he told his Jewish listeners, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said from the outset, there's quite a bit of, of disagreement and wrangling back and forth between different groups that call themselves Christian as to what baptism really is. There are those who teach wrongly that you need to be baptized 
in order to be saved. We need to ask, first of all, how does that line up with what God's Word says about the nature of salvation? God's Word says that we are saved by faith alone. Not faith plus baptism or faith plus anything. It is faith alone. We also know that that the thief on the cross was not baptized, was he? But nevertheless, Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Not be baptized, and then you'll be with me in paradise. He promised him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. So although baptism does not save, we do it out of obedience to what God has commanded us. We do this as the pattern that has been laid out for us in the New Testament. But then we also maybe should ask, who then should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Many of you have probably heard this story, but, but I, I like to say that, that I've been sprinkled once, dunked twice, but only once have I been really baptized. I was sprinkled as a baby in the United Church, a church where there was no gospel presented whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying that that would be true of all United Churches, but that was true of this particular church. There was no gospel. I'd heard of God, I'd heard of of Jesus Christ, but I did not know that I had to repent of my sins and receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I knew nothing of the true gospel. But then, at the age of 23, when, when I was finally converted and wanted to be baptized, um, my, my mom actually cried. She thought that I was joining a cult. And, and so, and I'd invited them to come, but, but they would not, they didn't want to be a part of it. And that, that grieved me. But you see that the, the, the church that I was baptized in was not a true church in the sense that they, they're, they're known as, as oneness Pentecostals. Now, there are many Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but they're very clear in that church that unless you are baptized in the name of Jesus only, you are not saved. They also teach that unless you speak in tongues, you are not saved. So by adding to the gospel, they are taking away from the gospel and making their gospel no gospel. And then several years later, I was involved in another church, and this one was actually, real, I believe it really was actually a cult, based on, on their nature of, of a works-based salvation and teaching um, all kinds of, of false truths, all kinds of things that were not the gospel. And when I first became part of this group, I was baptized, supposedly, into this group. But, but really, those first two were really just dunkings. I really was a Christian. But I might as well be, have been a donut and a cup of coffee for all the value that was attached to those so-called baptisms. Even though I was really a believer, these were not churches, and therefore it was not a real baptism. And then fast forward to when I went to seminary, 
and being at a, at a Southern Baptist seminary and, and wanting to join a Baptist church, they had a, a, an excellent membership process, very stringent. And, and, and we'd gone through the whole discussion and, uh, about the nature of my salvation, how I was saved, my walk with the Lord. But then I said, you know, I have one question for you. What about baptism? And so we discussed the issue, and it was, it was a great opportunity being there in a, in, a, in a seminary where my professors had written books on baptism to be able to go to these men and, and ask questions about the nature of baptism. And, and it came, came out that we came to the conclusion that, that I needed to be really baptized. So there at 17 years old in the Lord, just two years ago, I finally got baptized. So as I said, I was, was sprinkled once, dunked twice, and then was really baptized. Now, there may be some even here who have been sprinkled, but have not been obedient to Christ's command to be baptized. Because the word in the Greek, baptismo, actually means to immerse. It actually means to immerse. And the command also is to repent and be baptized. So if you were sprinkled as an infant, how could you have repented? The command is also to believe and be baptized. An infant can't believe. It can't believe. And maybe there's even some here who who were baptized as a younger person and, and making a profession of faith, but through their lives, they, they demonstrated that they were really unbelievers and maybe have only come to Christ more recently. I would argue that, that if that is you, then, then please come and talk to somebody in leadership in the church because you may have to really be baptized. So we talked about some, some wrong beliefs about baptism. But what are some of the right beliefs? What should, what should we believe about baptism? What does Scripture teach us about the nature of baptism? Well, first of all, as we said earlier, baptism does not produce any spiritual change. It doesn't. It's, Brandon and Delia have already demonstrated that the spiritual change has, has, been, has already taken place. They're demonstrating by their lives the fruit of repentance. They're demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They have proved themselves to be genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And so the baptism itself isn't, isn't it, it's nothing but really a, an, well, not to, to, to undermine it, but it is a, a, an outward obedience. It is a picture of what has already taken place in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is an outward symbol of the inward reality of their regeneration. Let me say that again. Baptism is an outward symbol of the inward reality of their regeneration. And I use that word symbol very intentionally, and you'll see why in a few moments. So baptism, then, is it's a proclamation. It is a public declaration or a public testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. Brandon and Delia are declaring to God, the church, themselves, and the world that they have been unified with Christ. They have been unified with Christ in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. They are already members of 
of the, the universal invisible church, but in the near future, they will take out membership in this church so that they will be, be covenanting together with this local church to love and serve God and each other. So, so they, that, that as a Baptist church, you need to be baptized in order to become a member of this church. And next week, I'm actually going to be, be spending the, 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 the whole of my time on church membership and what it actually means. Church membership and what it actually means. So as I said, baptism is probably best defined as a symbol of the spiritual reality of their regeneration. You see, I use the word symbol because a symbol is actually more than a sign. You see, a sign points to something, like a stop sign. It doesn't really tell you anything. If you, if you were to come from a, another planet, not that I believe there's life on other planets, but if you were to come from another planet and see a stop sign, you would have no idea what it meant. But you see, baptism, by its very nature, is a picture. It's a symbol or a picture of what has happened in their hearts. It's a picture of their union with Christ. It's a picture of their, their being with him in his life. And then when they go under the water with his death and burial, and then when they come up out of the water with his resurrection. It is a beautiful picture. Now, one of the most important passages about baptism is Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. Here, Paul uh, explains our union with Christ in the form of a syllogism. Now, that's probably a new word to many of you, but a syllogism is a form of logic which is also known as deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning. And so let me give you an example of deductive reasoning. If we say all dogs are mammals, and then we say a husky is a dog, then we can deduce or conclude that huskies are mammals. Do you understand? I'll say that again. So if you say all dogs are mammals, and you say a husky is a dog, then you can conclude, therefore, huskies are mammals. So in Romans 6, verses, well, I guess it's 2 to 14, Paul explains our union with Christ like this. He says, verses 2 to 8, Christians have died with Christ and were raised with Christ. And in verses 9 and 10, Christ died to sin and was raised to new life. And then in verses 11 to 14, therefore, Christians have died to sin and have been raised to new life. Okay, that's a syllogism. We have those, those two points, and then we can logically conclude the third. I'll say it again. Verses 2 to 8, Christians have died with Christ and were raised with Christ. Verses 9 and 10, Christ has died to sin and been raised to new life. Therefore, verses 11 to 14, Christians have died to sin and have been raised to new life. Okay, now, hopefully that will become clear as I go on here. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in, in Romans 6, uh, verses, verses 2 to 14. But before we go to, to Romans 6, it's important to set the context so let's have a look for a moment at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. 
We can look first at verses 12 to 14. I'm reading here from the ESV Bible. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law had been given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. So if there's one word that really stands out in this passage, what word is that? Death. Death. You see, death came into the world through Adam and his sin in the garden. Prior to that original sin, there was no death. Nothing died prior to sin. But every single person after Adam and Eve has been born dead in their trespasses and sins. We also have been born dead in our trespasses and sins. Every person on the planet, every person who has ever walked the planet, dead, born dead, except one. You see, after Adam, death reigned, and it was an absolute reign. It was a reign of terror. Death is the final enemy. It has not yet been fully defeated. But in Christ, we see the first fruits of its eventual, complete, and total defeat. In Christ, we have hope for life. But every human being, every human being was born in a, in a mysterious union with Adam, our first father. And so somehow when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We are all guilty because of Adam's sin. But there might be some people here who say, well, well that's not fair. How could I be pronounced guilty because of Adam's sin? Well, even if you are not guilty because of Adam's sin, you're still guilty. You're proving that you're Adam's offspring by the way you lived your life prior to coming to Christ, how you were bent on sin. You are proving yourself to be dead. We talked about this the other night in our Bible study. How long does it take before you see that that cute little baby lying there in its diapers is a sinner? Ask any parent. It doesn't take very long for that child's true nature to be, to be demonstrated. But we were all dead. We were all dead. Now we're going to come back to this in a moment, but, but look at verse 18 of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, condemnation for all men. See, but it didn't even just start at birth. It actually started at conception. That's why King David said in, in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth or born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. As soon as the two gametes came together, a sinner was, was created. 
Those two cells somehow were sinful two cells. But like King David, we were born dead and unable to do anything to save ourselves. Look at verses 15 to 21. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the, the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's sorry by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience will many be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So for the rest of that chapter, the Apostle Paul contrasts the death that we were under through Adam and the life that can only be found through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass or the sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abandoned for many. So he goes on to explain that the condemnation of death came through Adam, but the justification of life came through Christ's gift. So by Adam, by Adam's sin, we all sinned, but by Christ's obedience, we are all made righteous. And the more that sin increased, the more grace in believers abounded. The bottom line is this. Every single person in this room is either in Adam or in Christ. If you are in Adam, you're dead. You're dead. However, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, his obedience has been credited to your account. This is called imputation, where his obedience has been imputed or given to you. Christ obeyed the Father perfectly. Perfectly. In thought, in word, and in deed. And that life, Christian, has been applied to you. It's as though every single good work that Jesus Christ did has been credited to your account. Everything. Christ left nothing undone. Nothing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
So God now looks at us and calls us righteous. God calls us righteous. But not by our good works, by Christ's good works. That is the first aspect of our union with Christ. It is union with Christ's life. Paul then goes on to say in, in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul has just explained that the more that sin increased, the more that grace increased. He said that just as Adam's sin earned death for us all, so Christ's obedience earned life for all of his people. Now, Paul knew that this was going to be controversial. And he did this often. When he presented something that was difficult or controversial, he anticipated the question. Or he anticipated the critique. And that's why he says here, he says here, by no means. By no means. Or as the King James says it, God forbid. You see, the conclusion of the natural man is that, or is that, is that the more that we, that we can just continue on in sin. The natural or fleshly man, the man who has not been born again, thinks somehow that, that grace means you can sin more. But that is not true for those who have been born again. Those who have been truly born again, who really are committed to Jesus Christ, those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, those in whom God is at work to make us um, desire, to make us desire to obey Him, to enable us to, to do the good works that He has prepared in advance that we should walk in. Those who have been born again would never say that. If you love God, you will keep His commandments. So we'll say, by, we'll say with Paul, God forbid, I hate sin. I want to fight against sin with everything that is in me. Okay, so we've set the scene now for what Paul is going to say about baptism in, in Romans 2, Romans 6, 2 to 14. Let me go back to, to the, our, our deductive reasoning here. Verses 2 to 8, Christians have died with Christ and were raised with Christ. Verses 9 and 10, Christ died to sin and has been raised to new life. And verses 11 to 14, therefore, Christians have died to sin and have been raised to new life. So let me read verses 2 to 8. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So we have died with Christ and were raised with Christ. 
This is the, the first aspect of our union with Christ from Romans 6. We have died with Christ. Paul presents this in, in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He says in verse 3, we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried with him. Verse 5, united with him in a death like his. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, one who has died. And verse 8, we have died with Christ. Paul's pretty emphatic here, isn't he? He could not be clearer. Christian, you have died with Christ. That's what baptism portrays. When you go down into the water, you are, you, you are saying, I have been unified with Christ in his death and in his burial. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3.3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But Christian, you have not only died with Christ, you have also been raised with Christ. When we put somebody under the water, we don't leave them there. They come up out of the water, representing the new life that we have in Christ. Christ died, but he rose again on the third day. Likewise, we have died, but we have also been raised with Christ. Another hallelujah. We have been raised with Christ. We come up out of the water just as Christ has come up out of the grave. It is a beautiful picture of our spiritual union with Christ. Now this union, it's, it's spiritual and it's mysterious. Somehow, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are unified with Christ in his death. By the, by the work of the Holy Spirit, not something that we did ourselves. It is monergistic. The Holy Spirit did that alone. We didn't commit spiritual suicide when we came to Christ. We were already dead. We were already dead. But somehow the Spirit has applied the life of Christ to us. And we read in Romans 8, verses 10 and 11, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is also a legal union. This means that, that God reckons or counts or considers Christ and his people to be united together. It's God's declaration, just like the declaration that we are justified or pronounced not guilty is a legal declaration, so our union with Christ is also a legal declaration. Just as a husband and wife are legally declared to be one through marriage, so also we are legally unified with Christ in his death and in his life. That's why, that's why Christ in the church so often, or the church rather, is so often referred to as the bride of Christ. In fact, the ultimate reason for marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. 
Study Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 to see what I'm talking about. This union is also an eternal union. It stretches from eternity past to eternity future, from before the creation of time to the termination of time. This is an eternal union. Ephesians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we, should be home, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Get your head around that for a second. Or try to get your head around it. That somehow in eternity past, you were blessed with Christ. Before time even existed. And that union with Christ goes from all the way back then, all the way through forever and ever, and ever, and ever. That union will never be dissolved. It can never be dissolved. We need to ask the question, when Christ died, what did he die to? And when he was raised, what was he raised to? That's in verses 9 and 10. Christ died to sin and was raised to new life. Christ died to sin and was raised to new life. Verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, in order to understand this, again, it's essential that you understand what we talked about from back in Romans 5. The entire race, the entire human race, was born dead in Adam, dead in trespasses and sins, and slaves, God's word tells us, to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what the second half of Romans 6 is all about. Verse 16 says, Don't you, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So it was necessary for salvation to come from outside of the human race. Salvation had to come from outside the human race. No created being could save us. That was the mandate that is the mandate of God alone. God the Son had to take on flesh. It had to come from outside. We could never have done anything to save ourselves. Remember David's comment from Psalm 51.4, In sin did my, did my mother conceive me. Now, Dave Griffiths actually talked about that. I hadn't thought about this before Wednesday night. But because we were sinners from the moment of conception, Jesus had to be conceived in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit to break that chain of sin. So when Jesus Christ came, he was entirely a new kind of being. 
fully God and fully man, and able to save his fallen people. Christ alone was able to die in our place. But we need to ask them, what does that mean that that Christ died to sin? It's in Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In sending his own son in the likeness of, of, of human flesh, of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In sending Christ in the likeness of of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Sin was condemned in the flesh by Jesus Christ. Now Christ died, but he only died once. And he is never going to die again. Now that he has been raised from the dead, he will never die again. Likewise, spiritually, we will never die. Death had no power over Christ. Death has no power over us. Final point. Verses 11 to 14. You have died to sin and been raised to new life. That's the conclusion. Therefore, therefore, you have died to sin and have been raised to new life. Verses 11 to 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks be to God, fellow Christian, that because of our union with Christ, we too are dead to sin. From a spiritual perspective, we've already died. However, we have to now consider ourselves dead to sin. From God's perspective, you have already died. You need to work to make that your perspective as well. Colossians 3 explains this perfectly. Please please turn with me there for a moment. Colossians 3. Look first at verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we also, we also are to consider ourselves dead to sin. Verse 6 explains what that looks like. Sorry, verse 5. Put on, therefore, sorry, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then Paul goes on to list a series of sins. So we're to, because we have died with Christ, and we're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, we put to death those things that, that 
the sin that so easily entangles us. And then verse 12, we put on then as God's chosen ones, obedience and righteous behavior. So we put off the sinful works of the flesh and we put on the obedient works of righteousness. And that's what Paul tells us to do here in in Romans chapter 6. Every person in this room is a slave. You are a slave. But you're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Jesus Christ. You once were a slave to sin and free from from all righteousness. Because of your Adamic nature, you were free from anything good. You could not do anything good, anything. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You were under a death sentence, but now For the Christian who has been unified with Christ, you have been set free from bondage to sin and have been set free to serve God. I hope that elicits another hallelujah in your heart. That you have been set free from the bondage of sin to serve God. So now meditate on the new life that you have in Christ. Sin is dead in you. Don't let it reign. It's, it's like the slave who has been, has been set free, his, his chains have been broken off, but he keeps on wanting to pick up the chains and wrap them around himself again. Brother and sister, the chains of sin have been broken from your life. Walk by God's grace in the obedience that he is working in your heart. Don't let sin reign. Your body is not your own. Your eyes are not your own. Stop looking at what you shouldn't look at. Focus instead on things that please God, the study of His Word, looking for opportunities to bless others. Your hands are not your own. Stop touching things and grabbing hold of things that you are not meant to touch or grab hold of. Instead, use your hands to serve God and serve others. Your mouth is not your own. Stop saying things that you shouldn't say. Stop discouraging others using hurtful words and gossip and slander. Instead, sing praises to God. Proclaim the gospel and encourage others. Brother and sister, we have been set free. We have been set free in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. What was the price that was paid for you? What was the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. You've been bought with the blood of of Jesus Christ. Brandon and Delia are making a bold statement this morning. They're declaring that they are also slaves to Christ. They're declaring that every single part of their body, every single cell, 
belongs to Christ and is to be used for his glory. But with that command that we are to obey him also also comes a promise. It's the promise that God is going to do that in you. It's a promise that, that God will help you. He is not leaving you alone. He has left you his Holy Spirit indwelling you to help you to obey. He has given you this church family to love you and care for you and pray for you and encourage you. But that is not just true for Brandon and Delia. That is true for everyone who wants to be a part of this church. So as I close, Christian, I want you to think back to the time that you were baptized. I want you to think back to the commitment that you made. You're dead. Now live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Brandon and Delia. And Lord, for the privilege that it is to celebrate their union with Christ with them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life, for your death, for your burial, for your resurrection all applied to us by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to walk not according to the flesh, but to walk according to your Spirit and the strength you provide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, my privilege and joy to be able to do this uh, with, with Delia. Although I've been in the water a few times, this is my first time actually doing it. So, come on down. Okay. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we again want to thank you for Delia. And Lord, for her love for you. We thank you, Lord, that she loves you because you first loved her. We thank you, Lord, that you have placed her in a godly home. Lord, where your name is proclaimed every day. And Lord, we want to commit her into your hands and pray, Father, that you would even now give her grace, encourage her. Lord, that you would, would impress the truth of what she's about to do on her heart. Lord, that she may look back on this time as, as a time where she was making a bold statement for you. And I pray, Lord, that as she has already made many bold statements for you, that this would, would continue, Lord, for the rest of her life, that she would continue to stand up for you in the grace that you provide. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And I'll still you to share her testimony. I grew up in a Christian home and have heard God's word for as long as I can remember, but I never took it to heart. There was a time where I said that I was safe, but I know I wasn't. I didn't repent and I was living in sin. One night when I was talking to my dad, I realized that I was a sinner 
and that I can't live without God. I ask God for the forgiveness of my sins and to help me to live a life pleasing to him. After that, I began reading and studying God's word and I was growing in my faith and bearing fruit. So now I want to please and glorify God by doing his will and getting baptized. Gilly, do you believe that Jesus Christ is a sinless son of God? I do. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again on the third day? I do. Have you turned away from your sin and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Then it is my great joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.